Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We often suppose that wars are fought over things like resources, border disputes, and ideologies. My guest calls this the spreadsheet approach to war, and argues that, in reality, such factors only come in as justifications for the much deeper drives at play. Mike Martin is a senior visiting fellow in the Department of War Studies, King's College London, and the author of Why We Fight. Today on the show, He draws on his background in biology and experience serving in the British Army to offer an explanation as to why individuals and nation-states go to war. Mike argues that there are two fundamental impulses behind the drive to war, the drive for status and the drive for belonging. We discuss these motivations and how leaders and ideologies corral and amplify them. We end our conversation with how this view of war can prevent conflicts and allow them to be fought more successfully, and also via lens on how to help men flourish in a healthy way. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash why we fight. All right, Mike Martin, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, you wrote a book called Why We Fight, where you take a deep dive in exploring why humans engage in warfare. I'm curious, what led you down that path to write this book? Primarily, it was to explain my own experience of fighting in a war. I, I spent a couple of years in Afghanistan as a British Army officer. And previously to that, I'd studied biology at university and it seemed to me as I was fighting this war that it didn't really make sense. It wasn't, it wasn't logical. It didn't, it, there was no, you know, wars just don't make sense in the sense of people die, everything gets destroyed. And so I set out to try and explore why it is that humans fight war and not just occasionally, we fight them all the time. Well, I'm curious, when you were fighting, when you were an officer in the British Army, what was your experience like? Because you talk about in the book, you were really jonesing to sign up. Like you wanted to sign up. You wanted to experience that. I think, firstly, I need to say that I don't think that that's that rare, particularly at a time. So I joined the army in 2007. So we knew we were going to war, right? Okay, Iraq was tailing down for us at that point, but but Afghanistan was just getting going. So you, you only joined the British army at that time with the knowledge that you were going to war. And what I actually found was that a lot of people had joined because they were going to war. People joined, did one or two tours, and then left because they'd done what they wanted to do. And so it was a motivating factor. And actually, armies have this all the time. Their, their recruitment goes down in peacetime because people join armies because they want to fight. And I think you talked about there's a moment where you, it was actually exhilarating. And people often talk about how war is like, oh, that'd be scary. It is scary, but at the same time, it can also be mm. really exciting. Yeah, it's kind of like a zen-like feeling. So you 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 get into, and it can be scary as well. It's, it's a bit like you're on a knife edge and you, and you can go one way or the other. And so, and again, you know, just to repeat, this is not me. You look up and down the line of people who are, firing their weapons or there are, you know, bullets flying overhead. And a lot of them are having the time of their lives. And of course, that you know, if someone gets injured or something, then that totally changes the dynamic, of course. But people are in a state of mental clarity, I guess, partly because 
the outside world is stripped away. Like you're in something very, very binary here, isn't it? They survive or you survive. It's also something that perhaps you might have spent several years training for. I mean, some of the people who I got into firefights with in Afghanistan spent 20 years in the army and never been shot at, never fired their weapons in anger. And then all of a sudden they were doing what they were meant to be doing. But there was also a, you know, you asked a little bit about it in your last question. A lot of those people, and, and predominantly they were young men, right? A lot of those young men wanted to test themselves. They saw combat as, if you like, a, is it a, a way of becoming a man perhaps, or a way of proving themselves, a way of demonstrating that when the bullets start flying, they can, they can deliver. Like they are a man, they are able to get into that bracket of people who've done that. You know, these days, quite a rare experience, probably less so if we go back, you know, a few hundred years. And I think all of these things come together to create a drive towards fighting in combat and a sense of it is something that they need to do or that they want to do. And obviously everyone doesn't feel this, but these people felt it. These young men particularly felt it. Everything is something that they need to do in order to prove themselves. I'm curious, when you signed up, like, what did you tell people your motives were? Did you, or even yourself, did you say, like, I'm fighting for freedom, I'm fighting for democracy? Was that the thing you told yourself? Or did you just say, I just want to experience the, the excitement of it? No, I didn't, I didn't say any of that stuff. And I guess, actually, maybe there's a little bit of a difference between a British and American audience. I think the way the Brits and the Americans see their armed forces and talk about their armed forces is a bit different. I think the American, and this is just cultural differences, right? I think Americans slightly talk more about things like that when they're talking about fighting, whereas Brits talk a little bit less about that kind of stuff. But even so, I think I'm probably one of those people who always wanted to be a soldier. And I think there are quite a lot of people like that. And I suppose maybe maybe had there not been a war on when I, that Britain was fighting in when I was in my, you know, 20s, it's interesting to ask what, what would have happened. Would I have still gone into the army if it was a peacetime army? Would I have tried to find that thing somewhere else? But I think what I said to people was that for me, it was war's always been fascinating. Afghanistan was a particularly fascinating and complex conflict. And I think uh, probably the word I would have used is adventure. I suppose that's the kind of closest proxy to it, which you know, and again, when we're describing things to other people, I guess we're sort of thinking about how we want ourselves to be perceived as well. If I think about the 22-year-old Mike or the 23-year-old Mike, so there was probably a bit of that going on. Probably my feelings were a bit stronger than that, but I used the word adventure and, and I'm fascinated by it as a way of slightly socialising the drives that I had towards going and fighting in a war and, and, and proving myself, you know, as we, as we discussed. So as you said at the beginning, war is, if you take a step back, it's really weird. It's really bizarre. Countries amass yeah. large numbers of people. They spend tons of money. People die. They just blow stuff up. It's just weird. And so when social scientists try to explain like why humans do this, what are the standard explanations for why humans engage in warfare? Mm. Yeah, well, they're social scientists, right? So they have a the kind of rational view of the world. It's called the rational actor model. And the idea is that you can quantify stuff in the world. And I'll come on to some of those things in a minute. And then you can put them into a model. And it will tell you, like, if you have more of A and less of B, then you're more likely to end up in a war. And there was this huge couple of decades worth of social science research looking into this wider complex happen. And so they would look at things like political fragmentation. And they would look at things like prevalence of extreme ideologies, resources, inequality, things like that. And of course, all of these things are factors that lead to war. Like if a country is more unequal, or the resources are held in a small elite, then yes, all other things being equal, it's more likely to go to war internally. Or if there's two countries that have a border dispute, or they have a history of going to war, then they're more likely to go to war. So of course, all of that is true. 
but it still misses the essence, right? And it comes back to this thing, you know, you said it doesn't make sense because of countries and whatever. On an individual level, it really doesn't make sense. So me as an individual, this is where my sort of background in biology really came to the fore. I'm an evolved being. I've evolved to survive and reproduce. So why am I risking my life to go and fight for, uh, you know, in the modern age, I didn't get anything out of going to Afghanistan as a British Army officer apart from my salary, right? Obviously, again, life experience and all the rest of it. But I didn't end up with more women or more resources or anything. It was just a job, right? But yet I still had that drive towards it. And so the real question for me is, why are individuals driven to fighting wars? If they're compelled to, fine. But volunteer armies exist and have existed for thousands of years. So why do individuals go and fight in wars, particularly when, you know, in the extreme case, if you think about France in the First World War, the death rate for young men, say, aged between 16 and 35, was about 30%. So you have a one in three chance of dying for a kind of hard-to-quantify benefit in of any benefit, but particularly in terms of survival and reproduction. So that really doesn't make sense. And I think that the social scientists who are looking at these wars and reasons and causes for war in terms of models and really spreadsheets, I sort of call it the spreadsheet approach to war, are missing this this essence right at the heart of it, which is not only why do countries go to war, why do individuals go to war? It just simply doesn't make sense. And as you mentioned, your biology background helped you explore this. And you you make the case that evolutionary psychology can help us understand why individuals fight. So what how can evolutionary psychology help us understand why humans fight in wars? Well, if you have something that exists in a population that has a negative selection pressure, so in this case, a drive to go to war, right? And obviously it's lots of different drives, but let's just say that there is this thing. If war has such a huge death rate, you would expect it to be selected out. The things that contribute towards young men going to fight in wars, you'd expect them to be selected out of the gene pool. But we don't see that. We still see war at, you know, a very high prevalence, right? We see wars, you know, wars are starting all the time. There's loads of them. And so the only reason things that have a negative selection pressure can exist in the gene pool is if that particular trait also has something very, very positive for an individual's survival and reproduction. And that positive outweighs the negative that you get from going to war. So war is a byproduct. So we have this wonderful thing that's evolved that's helping us do X, Y, and Z, and I'm sure we're going to come on to those things in a minute. But as a byproduct, unfortunately, those things that we've evolved to seek because they help us survive and reproduce actually as a byproduct cause us to go to war. And that causes a 30% death rate. But the thing that they originally evolved for help us even more survive and reproduce than 30%. So therefore, they remain in the gene pool. So that's how evolutionary, in sort of big ideas terms, can help us understand how something like going to war has evolved and has remains in the gene pool. So the main thesis of your book is that humans engage in warfare because we have these evolutionary urges because they help us survive and reproduce. These urges are the two main ones that you argue are the drive for status and for belonging. Let's talk about this status drive first. If we look back in our evolutionary past, what sorts of things did we compete over and how did you know, achieving status help us get those things? So humans are animals, right? And so we compete. I mean, that's you only need to take a sideways glance at human society to see that we're competing all the time for everything sports, you know, jobs, promotions at work. You know, you run a podcast, you're looking at how's my podcast doing against other people's podcasts? And so our society is built on competition because we, you know, humans compete with each other. And if you go back, say, 100,000 years, so we've got bands of hunter-gatherers, there were basically there's two types of things that animals compete for. Humans is just the same. There's real resources. So that's like food, water, sexual partners, you know, prey perhaps. And then there's what are called surrogate resources. And surrogate resources are things like land or territory and status. And the beauty about surrogate resources, once you have those resources, they enable you to have access to real resources. So if you have land, for instance, if you control territory as an animal or a human, you might get the water that's on that territory, or you might get perhaps there's a, you know, it's used by some animals that you have as your prey. So you don't need to compete for the prey itself. You just compete for the surrogate resource and then you get what you actually want, the real resource. And status is the same. 
we compete for status as humans because predominantly because it enables us to do lots of things. You know, higher status people survive longer, they tend to get more food, all that kind of stuff. But the real thing that higher status gave us in the evolutionary environment as men was access to more women. So higher status men tended to have more sexual partners, more wives, if we think about polygamy, like the idea of monogamy being the standard pattern in society is, is a relatively new one. For most of our evolutionary history, and you can tell this by looking at the structure of, of human DNA, we've been polygamous. And what higher status men allows us to do is work out who gets more women and who gets less women. And you think, well, why is that? Well, there's a very, very simple reason for that. And that's because if you imagine a, a man and a woman, obviously we're equal numbers of men and women in society. If you imagine a man and woman having sex and getting pregnant, the woman is then taken out of the field of reproduction for about, let's say, two years. So pregnancy, childbirth, and then lactation. So let's call it two years. And the man, you know, 10 minutes later, can go and impregnate another woman. And what that means is that although we've got equal numbers of men and women, women of reproductive age who are not tied up with child rearing are a rare resource compared to the number of men. So there's an oversupply of men. And if you have an oversupply of something, then you need to sort out who gets more access to the rare resource. And so that's what status enables us to do. And we have a set of hormones that enable us to do that. And testosterone is, is the key hormone. So everyone thinks that testosterone is about controlling particularly male aggression it's that's not actually correct what testosterone does is it it drives us to seek higher social status and it's just just that sometimes or a lot of the time being aggressive is a good way of getting or certainly a way of getting higher social status and so the average man has 20 times the testosterone of the average woman because for men having a higher social status has a much higher evolutionary payoff because of you know higher status men end up having more wives and if you put it in really really stark terms if the top 50% of men have two wives that means the bottom 50% of men have no wives and so there's a real selection pressure to be a higher status male because it it literally enables you to continue your evolutionary line and so this thing that drives us to survive and reproduce then plays a role in war that we can talk about later if you like Okay, so humans, uh, particularly males, on an individual level, have this strong drive for status because having status anciently meant you would have more access to resources, land, and women. So being high status increased the likelihood you would survive and reproduce. And anciently, gaining high status often meant engaging in violence. And today, we still have that status drive. We just have more ways that you can gain status that don't resort to violence. So you can start a successful business, be a rock star, make lots of money, be good at sports, et cetera. But even though we have more routes to status, you know, going to war, that's still a way to gain status. So let's talk about this second drive that all individuals have that contributes to groups engaging in warfare. And that's the drive to belong to groups. And what's interesting about this is it seems that the drive for status and the drive to belong to groups, they kind of conflict, right? Because we have this individual status drive to be better than everyone else in the group, but we also want to belong to the group. So what's going on there? Yeah. Well, so you are right. They do kind of work against and with each other, but that's what evolution's like, right? It just it evolves certain traits or involves multiple traits at the same time that sort of pulls humans in different directions, which is why Humans are both selfish and selfless at the same time. But the belonging things, again, quite simple. We live in groups to survive. Predominantly, it's about safety. And again, go back 100,000 years. We're on the African savannah and maybe a group of 20 of us. We're probably all kind of related. Maybe a couple of people have joined the group. But basically, that group keeps us alive because the environment is full of wild animals, other groups of humans who are you know, antagonistic to us, competing with us for resources. And also you need a group to, you know, it's quite difficult to live. You know, you need to walk long distances, find food, hunt together, all that kind of stuff. So the group is what enables you to survive. And being thrown out of that group is probably a death sentence. In many cases, it will be a death sentence. So there is this drive towards living in groups. And we all have this, right? We all 
want to support football teams, be in a choir, be, maybe be in a political party. We're all, you know, in a nation state, right? We all have a sense. Most of us have a sense of which country we belong to. Perhaps we feel proud of our country or patriotic. In many countries in the world, you might belong to a tribe or you might feel quite strongly about your ethnicity. Religion is another group, right? We, you know, lots of people feel very strongly Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or so on and so forth. And so we all belong to multiple groups, really, but it's all the same mechanism. And it's this mechanism that says, and it's evolved for the reasons I've just described, but the mechanism says, find a group and belong to it because groups keep you safe. And they have another of other benefits like enabling you to get access to more resources, enabling you to find sexual partners, but predominantly a group keeps you safe. So evolution is about survival and reproduction. Live in a group, you're much more likely to survive. It's a very, very strong evolutionary drive. And maybe you've had this experience, Brett, but I don't know if you support any sports. Do you support any sports? Uh, yeah, I'm a fan of the University of Oklahoma football, American football. Okay. Okay, so when you go to an American football match and you guys score a touchdown and you're all you you go mad in the stands, you're like screaming, shouting, and up and down, and and do you get like little shiver down the back of your neck and oh, down, down your back? Of course. The thing that gives me the biggest yeah. shiver is at the beginning of the game when the marching band comes out. Ah. You know, you hear the uh, the fight song playing and everyone's because that's your song, isn't that's it? That's right. Yeah, that's that. Gives, and you know the words. Yeah, and you're singing it together, and that's your clan. That's your crew. And so what you're doing, you know, actually what you're doing that in biological terms, psychological terms is you're all demonstrating that you remember that group and you're feeling warm and lovely and high. You're feeling high, right? And that is even if something makes you feel good, like eating sugar or having sex or singing the marching song, that, that, sorry, do you call it the fighting, fighting song? That is evolution pushing you to do those things again because they have an evolutionary benefit. And by converse, if something feels bad or you're unhappy to do it, then that's evolution motivating you in a different way to do different things. And so we all have this strong desire to belong to a group. But the thing about that mechanism, and again, it's controlled by another hormone called oxytocin, which is the same one that's involved in childbirth, but evolution just rehijacked it to become a social bonding hormone. That oxytocin mechanism cannot only create in-groups, it has to also create out-groups. And if you think about it, that's pretty logical. Imagine if you had a, a mechanism that just said, trust everyone, make everyone part of your in-group, you know, all sorts of sitting around loving each other. The problem with that is some, some people would evolve a mechanism that said take advantage of the, of the guys sitting around loving everyone. Basically, they become free riders. The only way that mechanism could evolve is if you put a boundary on the group. So you have a, a mechanism that says, find a group to belong to and trust and love all those people in that group. But make sure you understand who's in and out of the group. Don't trust people who are outside the group. Because you guys are, that's your group. You're the Oklahoma team. But the other guys, they're another group. And we shouldn't let any of the fans from, I don't know, Yale University or whatever, come into the Oklahoma stands because this is our area, right? And so that mechanism, that in-group, out-group mechanism, if you think about it, that's the basis of war, right? That's what we do in war. We separate ourselves out into groups. And... The way that mechanism works is if you get antagonism, so you're in an in-group and you get antagonism from an out-group. So the Yale fans are shouting their song at you and you and the Oklahoma stander. Firstly, you feel tighter within your group. Perhaps you feel more likely, more trusting, more friendly so that you're bantering with people you don't even know, but you know they're in the Oklahoma stand, so they're, they're good guys. But you're getting tighter, your in-group's getting tighter because you're getting all this antagonism from another team. And then you're maybe directing some back as well, right? And then that's causing them to get a bit tighter. Their groups, are feel, they feel more trusting. Who are these Oklahoma guys? And what I'm describing really is what we call escalation, right? If you watch the news and they talk about, you know, two countries are squaring off to each other, that escalation in physiological terms is that mechanism where in-groups and out-groups, a bit like a ratchet, are tightening up, directing rhetoric at each other, and that's causing the rhetoric of one group is causing the other group to tighten and issue its own rhetoric back. And this process goes backwards and forwards as groups become more and more antagonistic to each other. And, and you can see it, that escalates. And at some point, unless people de-escalate, that eventually ends up in some sort of conflict. And that can be, whether we're talking about you know, football fans on the street fighting each other, 
or whether we're talking about nation states, it's the same mechanism at play. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Okay, so I think we can come back to status drive here. This is how, this is how they, the status and belongings link up. Yeah. And causes people to engage in violence. So I guess what's happening is you have both intergroup competition and intra-group competition. 
So you know, men compete for individual status within a group, and this can lead them to want to fight in war to gain status. And then groups, they compete against each other too. And if the group you belong to is insulted or threatened, because your membership in the group is part of your identity, right? It's part of, it's part of your status too. So if the group is insulted, then you're going to want to retaliate and fight back. Is that how it works? There's that. That's definitely going on amongst all the members of the group. But there's also something quite particular about leaders. So leaders, if you think about it, let's say you get to be the president of America. You've probably spent 50 years of your life fighting off status challenges, right? (laughs) You've had to get elected to maybe the state legislature, then maybe the Senate, so on and so forth. You know, all of your life, you've had to win elections, fight off status challenges from other parties, from within your own party, who wants to lead your party. So by the time you get to president or the leader of any other country, you've spent decades probably fighting off status challenges. And so you, by definition, are a type of human that really seeks status and achieves it as well, right? So come back to the kind of testosterone driving you to seek status. Of course, when you get to be the top of that country, what do leaders do? Well, leaders create frameworks. They have a relationship with their followers. They create frameworks. They create structure for the group. And that's what people want when they belong in a group. They want structure and frameworks and they want to feel safe. And so there's a bit of a relationship between leaders and followers that works really well. They each give something to the other. But those leaders, so we've got leaders of two different groups. Those leaders have fought status challenges all their life. They get to be the top of the group. And then who are they fighting status challenges with? The leaders of other groups, right? Which in country terms or tribal terms is the leader of another tribe or the leader of another country. And so what you can find is that status challenges between leaders and this in-group, out-group ratchet between different groups of followers of different groups, all of these things are going on at the same time. And all of them, unless people consciously take a step back and de-escalate, both status challenges between leaders, a little bit of what you described, the status challenge between individuals because their identity is fused with the group. And then also this in-group, out-group ratchet effect between just different groups that are butting up against each other. All of those things are happening at the same time. And that's really what I'm describing to you in biological terms, what the news might call an escalatory pathway. Okay, so this is the main thesis of your book, that the reason why countries engage in war, countries might say they're going to war for you know, an abstract ideal like freedom or democracy. And that could be true. Like maybe you can say that's, that's going on there. But if you look down to it, like it, it often comes down to the leader of that country or group, they want status. And because people w- want to feel like they belong to the group, they will go along with that because they want to belong. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly that. Exactly that. And, you know, it's very difficult to say, you know, if the country says it's going to war because of freedom or democracy, or perhaps it's going to war to defend a religion or something. You know, we hear all this all the time in the news. That's impossible to prove or disprove, right? It's impossible to say what's going on in the minds of a leader. But we do have something really interesting from psychology called the justification hypothesis. And what that is, is that basically humans don't do things for the reasons that they think they do them. And the reason that we know that is because humans often initiate actions about a quarter of a second before their conscious brain frames the reason and they start talking about why it is they're doing something. And then if you read Kahneman, you know, the thinking fast and slow, we've got these two systems. We've got the unconscious system that makes decisions very quickly from the gut, if you like. And then we've got the conscious brain that comes along later and rationalizes those decisions, sort of explains to ourselves and to other people why we do them. And if you think about war, if we're driven towards war for reasons of status and belonging, and we might not even be aware of that ourselves, right? We're just driven to do it. We do lots of things. We've got no idea why we do it. We're just kind of our subconscious takes us there. And then a bit like me, age 22, well, why do you want to go to Afghanistan? I'm kind of looking around for a reason And this isn't a conscious, cynical process. That's just how human brains work. We look for reasons to justify already taken decisions that our subconsciouses have already taken. And in the case of war, well, because we're driven to go to war, partly because of our sense of belonging to our own group, 
often what we do is we frame the reasons we go to war using the narratives that we use to describe our own groups. So you often find that democracies go to war to you know, encourage democracy or the rule of law or perhaps for other things that, that are the narratives that help them bind together their own societies. That's really what these societal narratives are about, these frameworks like religion or different ideologies. These are the things that help us hold our own societies together. And again, I, I want to stress, it's not cynical. It's not people thinking, oh, I'm going to go and take the oil and I'm going to tell them it's all about freedom. Genuinely, leaders do believe this. But the way their brains work, often what they are pursuing at a subconscious psychological level is not what they say that they are doing, although they do believe themselves and they do think that those are the reasons why they're doing those things. No, this idea of a leader's drive for status contributes to why countries go to war reminded me of some books I read by American historians about the Revolutionary War here in the United States. And so here in the United States, the the common explanation of like the thing you learn in elementary school, like why America fought the British was, well, they got, we got taxed with our representation and we didn't like that and blah. Okay. And all these historians say, yeah, that's true. The question they look at is like, why did individual leaders in the colonies decide to turn patriot? Right. Like why did why did some stay loyalist and why did some rebel? And there's a historian, uh, Craig Bruce Smith wrote a book called American Honor. And then H.W. Brands, he wrote a book, Our First Civil War. It's about patriots and loyalists in the American Revolution. And what they did is they looked at individual founding fathers. So like George Washington, Ben Franklin, John Adams, and asked the question, like, why did they like why did these guys decide to turn patriot and become leaders in, in rebelling against the British Empire? And what you find with all of these guys, whether it's Washington, Ben Franklin, John Adams, they all experienced a moment where they felt they were disrespected or dishonored by the British. So in Washington's case, he was a general, he was a leader in the British army, and that's how he was gaining status. But he reached a point where he realized that because he was born in America, he was a, born a colonist, like he would never be considered fully a mm. British There's citizen. There's a ceiling on his career. Right, well. yeah. And so in like he's like, well, I'm not going any further. I'm going to rebel. Same thing happened with Ben Franklin. He was in London and he was having a meeting. I think he was getting kind of taken to the carpet because people in Philadelphia were rebelling. And, you know, Franklin, he loved the British Empire because he gained a lot from it. Like he became one of the most famous men in the world because of the empire. But then in this meeting, he realized these guys are never going to see me as an equal because I'm kind of this backwards American. And then with John Adams, it's interesting. You look at his journals and diaries and letters. The guy really wanted to be famous. He really wanted to have a reputation. And he saw the revolution as a chance to, to gain that status and recognition. Mm-hmm. And now all these guys, they would say, okay, it's, it's you know, democracy, freedom, representation, that is probably there. But underlying that, as you're saying in your book, is this individual drive for status. You know, they felt disrespected, and so they decided to fight. The two words you mentioned there are like honor and dishonor. Honor is, the concept of honor is about people recognizing that you are a person of status. And the idea of dishonor is, as you described, is effectively somebody not recognizing the status that you think you should have. And to use a modern example, I'm sure your listeners are aware during the global war on terror, America and Britain and other countries used drones to take out people that they you know, had intelligence that they were terrorists. And that was seen as a, you know, a successful way to prosecute that war. But there have been a couple of studies that looked at what that did, because effectively these drones could hover over a village for 24 hours or in an area for 24 hours. And so the people in that village would be sort of his... So they'd be aware that everyone knows what a drone is and there's no way that they can hit back at it. And at some point that drone might take out someone in the village or something. And that was dishonouring to many people in the Pakistani... Afghan tribal borderlands, that was a dishonorable way to conduct the conflict. And in some instances, just the very presence of those drones, let alone killing people and causing sort of revenge cycles, 
was seen as a motivating factor to people who felt the need to gain status because they felt that their families and they themselves were being dishonored by this kind of in the sky and that the only way to deal with that was to go and attack British and American and other you know countries soldiers so this idea of it this honor and dishonor is something that humans have always had in warfare and it absolutely speaks to what we've been talking about on the podcast today so we've been talking about sometimes people will say or even countries will say well we're going to war fighting for this ideology or it could be a moral code or religion. And that, like we say, that, that could be true, right? But underlying the, all those things are this drive for status and this drive to belong. But how do these like these abstract ideas, whether it's an ideology or religion, how do they interact with our drive for status and belonging to I don't know, kind of ramp up this drive to go to war? I think what they do is they mobilize and they justify because if you think about an army has got, I don't know, 500,000 people in it, every single one of them is going to have a slightly different reason that they want to go and fight. And if you have an encompassing ideology or framework, in the same way that, you know, in Britain and America, we're kind of liberal democracies and we believe in capitalism and democracy and separation of powers and, you know, blah, 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 right? And along with many other European countries, we all believe in all those same things. And that enables us to form quite successful alliances over many decades. And it's the same within a country. We have ideas about what America's like, or what Britain's like, and we all share those ideas mostly. And that enables us to function as a country. And I think it's the same if you go to war. If you have a, you call them abstract, I guess they are to most people's lives. If you have these abstract ideas, what it enables... Really, it's the linking factor between individual drives, which are often subconscious, and a direction of travel for a group. It's an expression of something, the lowest common denominator that the group can all agree on. And again, this is all subconscious rather than sort of consciously thought out, that enables them to shoehorn or align all of those slightly different selfish drives and motivations into one kind of direction of travel. And I think war is just an extreme example of what we see in our societies every day with our, you know, our group narratives. I'm sure all the Oklahoma fans have got a bunch of stories about your rivals, about you, about who you are. You've got all your folklore. All of that folklore is just a thing that if you spot another guy in an Oklahoma tea in a bar, you can chat and you've got a common narrative to talk straight away. You can probably talk for half an hour about a bunch of stuff that to someone else would be, to, you know, I would not understand any of it, but you guys have got your same group, you've got your same narratives. It enables you to quite different people to be part of that group. They encourage group cohesion, basically, is what those things do. Yeah, they set the framework. Laws, legal systems are another type of framework that we use to standardize our societies. So you mentioned in the war on terror, right? There's the Taliban. We went to go fight in Afghanistan because of the Taliban. Sure. And if you asked, you know, someone in one of these, uh, a person in the Taliban, like, why are you fighting in this war? They might've told you, well, you know, look, this is for our faith, right? Like we're, you know, sort of, they explain an ideology, but then you all, you talked about like, whenever you actually talk to these guys, like one-on-one -on -one, or whenever mm. um, British or American soldiers talk to prisoners of war and you ask like, why are you, mm. why are you fighting? And oftentimes the answer wasn't, well, for faith or whatever. It was, well, uh, I felt disrespected or it was for my group. I mean, basically just, I, I wanted to belong to a group. So, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time talking to Talibs. I was a political officer in Afghanistan. I spoke fluent Pushtu, which is the local language in Southern Afghanistan. And actually a lot of the, the part of the world that we were in, in Helmand province in the South was very, very, very tribal. And a lot of those people were fighting like in their village militia because they wanted to keep the police out because the police had been stealing their opium or taking their little boys away to rape them. Or they were from a tribal militia that was defending, keeping other people out of their tribe's lands. And so a lot of people were fighting for those tiny sorts of reasons. And they were all Muslim, sure. And I'm sure when they went to you know get their weapons or get money or whatever it was from the kind of central Taliban, if I can put it like that, in kind of really simplistic terms, 
I'm sure they expressed some of those more religious or perhaps anti-American, anti-British slogans. A lot of the time we got caught up in fighting that was between different Afghan groups. So, you know, Tribe A and Tribe B would be fighting each other. And Tribe B just happened to be in the police. And we were working with the police because they were in the government. And so that kind of dragged us into their trial dispute, which, you know, started a long time before we turned up and is still going on now. The Taliban was a really highly decentralized organization that, you know, it's not like we think about an army with a kind of structure and command and control and all the rest of it. And it did come together and coalesce once the coalition started drawing down its troops and leaving the country because a lot of other people could see that that was the way that things were going. The writing was on the wall, so they sort of plumped with the Taliban central structure. But certainly when we were there at our peak between 2010, 2014, it was much more fragmented and everybody had quite a low-level motivation for fighting. Their brother had been killed or their land had been stolen by a police chief. And they were kind of shoehorning that personal stuff into a wider narrative of getting rid of the occupiers or fighting for, you know, fighting for Islam. So how can this framework for understanding why we engage in violence help prevent violence? Like, I mean, if we have this case, okay, people go to war or even just engage in, you know, small level group violence because of status and wanting to belong to a group. How can knowing that, how can we use that to prevent violence or can we? I think we can. I think if we accept that that's true, that a lot of what's going on is, a lot of individual motivations of individual people, then we probably think a little bit more about, you know, if you're fighting an insurgency, how not to dishonor people, you know, because those people are basically creating more enemies. If you're negotiating a peace, then we need to think about appropriate status. And if we're finishing a war, well, who belongs to which group in psychological terms? Because although you and I are members of lots of different groups, there's probably a very few groups that we'd fight and die for. And so that's the key, which, which is the primary security group that people belong to. I think as well, we've got to stop thinking about war in terms of spreadsheets. Like war is emotional and it's psychological and it's completely intrinsic to human beings. Like we've done it forever and at great scale across all human societies for all time. And so clearly there's something utterly intrinsic to us in the way we want to fight wars, go and fight wars. And I think to reduce it to a spreadsheet where you're trying to say, oh, look, there's a presence of an ideology there. So if we get rid of the ideology, there won't be war. I just, you know, we need to humanize war. War is a human phenomenon and understanding it as such I think it makes it less likely that we're going to fight them. And if we do fight them, and this is the topic of my book that's just come out, actually, if we understand war as a psychological challenge, we're actually more likely to be able to fight them successfully. And if you can't avoid war, then the next best thing you can do is fight them successfully because then you get them over with quickly. The worst possible type of war is one that drags on forever, kills loads of people and doesn't achieve any of its goals thus sowing the seeds for future wars further down the line. It was interesting. My big takeaway from your book, I actually walked away thinking about how I can apply this on a, like a local level. But I think a lot of communities, they might be worried about like, okay, what do we do about young men joining gangs or doing this sort of antisocial stuff online? And I think understanding, okay, men, young men have this drive for status and for belonging. I think oftentimes the solution that people have to these problems, well, if you just tell these young men that they're wrong and like, here's the better thing they need to do, it's they, it sort of, I think oftentimes we treat human beings, like you were saying, as these sort of computers. That if you just download the right information, then they'll just see the error of their ways and they'll behave in a, an appropriate way. Instead, I was thinking, well, how can I help young men or how can we help young men achieve status and achieve that group belonging, but in pro-social ways? Well, so I agree, you have to understand the problem in order to fix it. But you haven't used the phrase, but this sort of toxic masculinity, this idea that, you know, there is a social problem that needs to be dealt with as if it's completely separate from male biology. You know, we have to say that there is a biological thing here that is real. 
And we should treat it as such. And as you say, shape the way we approach these issues in society, which no one disputes that there aren't issues in society around male aggression, the role of young men, all that kind of stuff, which I'm sure you, you know, you're tackling on the podcast. But to wish them away is not the way to solve those problems. Yeah, I guess the thing is figure out how to harness it and to a direction you that you think is good or pro-social or whatever yeah. you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mike, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So Why We Fight, you can get on Amazon, which is the book we've been talking about. And I've just released a new book called How to Fight a War. And probably the best way to keep up to date with me is on Twitter. So at Threshed Thought. Uh, and I'm sure Brett will put all the details in the show notes. So thank you, Brett. Fantastic. Well, Mike Martin, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Mike Martin. He's the author of the book, Why We Fight. It's available on amazon.com. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash why we fight, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give you off a podcast or Spotify. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.